Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Beyond Carbon podcast. This is George Dyer, the Executive Director of the Intentional Endowments Network. And for this episode, Chris and I are very excited to be joined by Jeff Minlin. He's the Chief Investment Officer at the Arizona State University Foundation. Um, and as we talk about in the episode, ASU has been a longtime leader in sustainability, um, and they were uh, a big leader in terms of uh, the Intentional Endowments Network as we were getting it going. Um, so we cover a ton of ground in this conversation. Um, you know, they've really, I think, done a great job of being holistic and systematic and thinking about a variety of themes and issues um, and ways to to implement it that benefit their their investment goals. And you know, the ASU Foundation's endowment has grown significantly in the last few years. And as we get into a bit at the end, uh, the performance of their mission-aligned sustainable investment strategy has been really strong. And I think, um, you know, again, they've taken a really smart approach to it. And so we really talked from the beginning to the end about how they um, had these conversations and did the education at the board level with the investment committee, what that looked like, and, you know, kind of a, some of the process points were for doing so. Um, we get into their net zero portfolio commitment, their work around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the investment process, and how that aligns with the university's goals and activities. And a whole bunch of other stuff from shareholder engagement, how they engage students, um, you know, how they think about this in different asset classes. So it was a great conversation. It went a little long because we had a, a ton of good stuff to talk about, um, but I really hope you enjoy it. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Um, so without further ado, here's our conversation with Jeff Minlin. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Welcome to the podcast. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here and really excited to hear more about uh, the work you're doing at Arizona State. Arizona State, for those who don't know, has been a real leader in sustainability across the university for many, many years, in large part due to the leadership of President Michael Crow, who's must have been there about 20 years now. Yep. So very excited to, uh, to connect Jeff and hear about how some of that work and leadership is uh, translating over to the ASU Foundation and uh, the endowment management there. I really appreciate you taking the time. Excited to share our journey. Nice. So yeah, to kick things off, um, we definitely want to hear about this foundation's journey. But first, Jeff, we'd just love to hear about your personal journey and kind of how you came into this role and what drew you to it. Sure. So um, so I'm an alum. I graduated from ASU back in the day and and spent you know the majority of my career on the private side. I did more of a quantitative background on uh, econometrics and econ and finance as my degree and ended up in a quant research shop. I'm making research for hedge funds and mutual funds, gravitated more towards the asset management side and found myself in the in the hedge fund world for a while before eventually um, starting to build internal management capabilities for a big broker dealer on the retail side. So we're managing about $5 billion of assets for a, a really large independent broker dealer um, and then had an opportunity to come back to, to my alma mater to, to start building out an investment team. Um, at the time, we had about 600 million in assets, and leadership had seen that, you know, as our trajectory was taking us higher and higher to a billion plus, that having more internal resources and skills would would be valuable as as we needed to optimize our our structure. So I, I joined about five and a half years ago. You know, have seen us go from 650 million to uh, just a hair under 1.4 billion uh, in the endowment, and you know, multiple other pools that that we're doing as as well. Wow. That's great. Every time I hear the number, it's a significant chunk higher. So that's that's great. 
I'm just curious yeah. too, did, did you have any exposure in that work to kind of ESG and sustainable investing or did that all come once you joined ASC's team? Yeah, no, I mean, it was the early days of it back back when I was on the retail side. So it, it tended to be more on the value side. So, mm-hmm. you know, you know, clients with a religious background or, or interest and, and they were kind of looking more on the exclusionary, you know, SRI side of, of things more so than really thinking of it as a as an investment strategy with with investment merits on on reducing risk or or enhancing return. You know, Jeff, I'm I'm really interested when we get further along in, in the conversation today to sort of dig in a little bit more to the your quant background as well as the background in in hedge funds. But maybe before we do that, it'd be interesting to give the the listeners, you know, some perspective of some of the things that you got you guys are doing at ASU, just broadly related to integrating ESG, how you think about mission-related investing, climate change, and the like, and, and maybe we can dig down from there. Yeah. Um, so again, I, so I sit at the, the foundation technically, right, which is a, a separate legal entity from the university. Um, we call it a, an institutionally related foundation. So we're a, a separate 501c3 with the sole mission of, of serving the university. So we've got, you know, different governance and, and things like that. But uh, again, we're, you know, been on a journey to be as aligned as possible with the university and you know asu's georgia had mentioned is, has really been a leader in this in this world um they had the the first school of sustainability the charter is is really rooted in the idea of inclusivity and impact we just opened our our new home for what we call our global futures lab the walton center for planetary health which we think of as a medical school for planet earth uh, it's got a focus on climate and food and water scarcity and and the oceans so you know this topic's really at the heart of, of of who we are. So you know, big part of my role is trying to think of how do we develop an investment strategy that that's aligned with that ethos of the university, all without sacrificing returns. So you know that that journey's been an, an interesting one. You know, there's this alphabet soup of terms that that I, I think we're all familiar with, whether it be you know SRI or SDG or CSR or ESG or, or whatever it might be, and they can be used interchangeably. But there's there's nuance in and what they are. So education, I think, became a really big part of, of, of the journey. And so, um, you know, early on, the, the idea of ESG was probably more of a eye roll size and groans than um, you know, environmental social governance. So I think there was a desire to be aligned, but, but not a lot of motivation. So we really had to get our committee up in, in knowledge and, and what was meant by it and, and how, do we, how do we actually implement things. Um, and that, that not all ESG meant divestment or impact or concessionary returns. So I think, you know, as far as milestones goes, um, we ended up creating a, a separate ESG subcommittee, so a, a, a separate governing body that that was tasked with evaluating ideas and priorities and, and elevating those topics to the broader committee. And, and that was really valuable for us because, uh, you know, an investment committee, especially of a volunteer foundation like ours, only maybe meets four times a year. So there's a lot of things on the agenda. So it was hard to, to elevate some of these topics early on. So that that was useful in there. Networking was was really big, and again, in that educational journey, we were um, you know founding members of the Intentional Endowments Network, provided us with a lot of resources, and including a roadmap on on how to go about this journey. And, and then things I think really started picking up the pace. Um, you know, with that education of the committee, needing to define what sustainability meant for ASU, um, starting to to articulate goals and priorities. We ended up creating a separate endowment pool um, that had more of an explicit mission aligned mandate. Um, and and that really helped things for for us working on engagement with uh, students 
Um, we ended up making a, a net zero commitment, different aspirations on the, the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion Jedi side, thinking about transparency, shareholder engagement, and really this overarching idea that, that we wanted to be a transformational catalyst where, you know, not only could, you know, our actions have an impact on, on the performance of the endowment and, and on the university itself, but it could be an example for the way, you know, others invest or, or, um, uh, or other managers go about their, their security selection process. It's so great and so much interesting stuff to unpack there. I, I wanted to kind of come back to the education piece, sort of where it all started, because I know that's a critical part. And, and thanks for mentioning the IEN's roadmap and so glad that that was useful because that's sort of the first step, right? It's just, what does this mean? And getting board members and investment committee members, you know, some common understanding mm-hmm. and past some of the myths and, and barriers. The ESG committee you mentioned, was that made up all of investment committee members or were there others that were brought into that? How, how did that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, so the AC Stars, which is a, you know, a higher ed um, group that, that, that does some sustainability rankings and surveys and things like that. You know, again, was was really useful in, in thinking through best practices on that. So our um, subcommittees evolved over time, but but ultimately, you know, one of the objectives was to have representation from our committee, representation from faculty, uh, mm-hmm. as well as from students, um, and and so that that's kind of the the core of it. And and then again, um, as it's evolved and as our needs have changed, we've been thinking about how does that uh, how does that membership continue to grow. Um, how do we get the voices of different stakeholders? How do we get the expertise that we need um, to do the things that we're trying to do? And so, yeah, I was going to ask if, you know, you mentioned the great expertise on campus and the faculty around sustainability. So some of that is being brought into these conversations. Yeah, I mean, I I always say, you know, one of our our biggest competitive advantages is is that, you know, we sit on the front door of 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 a large, you know, research one public institution. And, and mm-hmm. in the case of, you know, of this, you know, we're also the uh, been ranked number one in sustainability by uh, Sierra Magazine as the coolest school. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously a lot of expertise there on the academic and research side, as well as operations that um, that we can tap into. So that's that's a big part of I, I think our priorities with the subcommittee and and other networking that I do is is trying to make sure that that we're staying on top of the best thinking uh, in that regard. The business school, our, our WP Carey School of Business, um, is getting ready to um, to roll out a new center for responsible investing. So, you know, tapping into the faculty and 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 research folks that are leading that and getting that best thinking into our process and and our journey is 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 uh, is a big part of how we really leverage our our our, our role here. Yeah, that, that that's terrific. I, I think that that's a really interesting element that you're touching on here. And and you mentioned it before with aligning the foundation with the university. And you know, you look across, and not every public university. You know, has done that. You, you see a lot of them that have made, for example, carbon neutrality commitments. Yet, the endowments or the foundations are are not being managed in in concert with that. So, just a question. You know, how how did you sort of get the trustees to agree with that notion? And maybe more specifically, how did you you know get them sort of across the line with the notion that sustainability and incorporating sustainability was going to be synonymous with with better performance. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of things, right, there's been a lot of small steps over the last, you know, five and a half, six years, or even, you know, before my time here. So sometimes it, it feels like moving really slowly. But but when you, you know, look back over a, you know, a fairly short period of time, especially in in light of, of an endowment that's got a perpetual life, you know, we've, we've made a lot of progress with those baby steps. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, part of it is is moving slowly. 
part of it, you know, goes back to the education idea and and really spending time helping the committee understand that, um, you know, when we start talking about these things, not to let your eyes glaze over because we're talking about divestment, but there's other things to it. It was interesting. I, I a couple of years ago, I had taught a sustainable investing course. And, you know, basically I had to take the students through the same journey that we had to take our committee through, right? And you, when we started off mm-hmm. the first day of class, this, you know, we had, you know, probably half the students thought that we were going to be talking all about impact and, and you know, investing in in things that had a, a high impact and, and didn't really care about the returns. Um, and the other half thought it was all going to be about, you know, excluding um, fossil fuel companies from the portfolio and, and really, you know, going through what what we mean by responsible investing or, or sustainable investing and, and, and that it could be those things, but it's also a myriad of others. And, and that was the same conversation we had to get our, our committee comfortable with. And then, as I said, I think having a separate pool um, provided us with the ability that we were able to have more conversations about how do we do it, not whether we should be doing it. Um, and that that allowed us to advance the ball as well, because we we tended to get stuck in a lot of those conversations. You know, if we if we wanted to have a, uh, we have a passive mandate as part of our public equity allocation. And if we brought the idea of, of fulfilling that with an ESG ETF rather than a, you know, a plain vanilla market cap weighted ETF, you know, inevitably we'd get into a conversation about fiduciary. And, you know, since the ESG ETF is more expensive, could we even do that? Yeah. And not really get into the heart of, you know, the value potentially that an ESG orientation could bring. Whereas again, in a separate pool, you kind of take that off the table and it's, it's how do we how do we implement an, an allocation? Not not should we be doing it? So that that mm. helped us make a lot of progress, and then again get the committee comfortable with the merits of a lot of these approaches, and and that it wasn't always going to be about excluding things from the portfolio. Yeah, it's a great point, and I think uh, that underlying kind of principle of getting started is so important because we do see these conversations can get stuck in endless cycles otherwise. And kind of miss out on a lot of benefit, I think, of, of these approaches. Yep. The other thing I'd say, you know, we've been lucky. I kind of joke it's so hot here most of the year that that you know we don't have students picketing outside of our office like maybe at, at other places. But it has allowed us to be, you know, I think more thoughtful than reactive uh, versus maybe some other schools that that are responding to a lot of those things. So we've had a little bit more time to think through, you know, the alignment and and um, work with stakeholders in a in a I think maybe a more you know, symbiotic way than than a confrontational way, and and, mm-hmm. and getting to the the place that we are on on our journey, um, which which has been helpful in in that way as well. Yeah, got it. You know, if we if we think about you know sort of the, going from the the board and policy level activities to maybe a little bit touch a little bit more on implementation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you guys are using an OCIO model to to do the implementation. Can you can you talk about you know the benefits? And challenges of that as it relates to sort of implementing sustainability principles and sort of how you settled on and how you're monitoring your your current OCIO and just you know how that's working. Yeah. In general. No, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, we um, you know as I mentioned when you know when when I started we were we were you know 600 million and um, we're uh, I wasn't part of the selection process but the committee had just selected BlackRock to be our new OCIO so I I was. Part of the implementation of them, but 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 not um, not part of the selection. So you know we 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 definitely view them as kind of an extension of staff. You know we like to say that you can outsource implementation, but you can't outsource strategy. 
Um, and I think in the sustainability world, it's it's probably most apparent, right? We we really can't ask BlackRock to define what sustainability means for Arizona State University. Um, that's something that we've got to do internally and, and then work with them and, and figuring out how to implement that in, in the portfolio that, that makes sense for us. So I think, you know, certainly the I think the basics of an OCIO makes sense in the in the benefits, right? It's it's an extension of staff, they've got more resources, they've got a broader perspective or 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 purview over um, you know, different types of ESG strategies and managers and, and what makes sense from a portfolio construction perspective. And again, I think the, you know, the biggest challenge is, is, is just as I alluded to, it's is, is needing to have internal resources and or a committee that that's focused on defining strategy and, and things like that, because you really can't look to the outside world for that to be done for you. Yeah, it is. I mean, we've heard too, just the sort of OCIO model, one of the big benefits in terms of these conversations is it does free up some of that time to talk about the strategy, about the mission alignment, about why you're doing this and not, you know, committees don't have to spend all their time just reviewing managers and, you know, kind of doing a lot of that legwork. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. All right. So, so yeah, I'd love to dive more into the net zero commitment because that's been a big topic of conversation in the intentional endowments network and the investment field more broadly. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, ASU, you know, decided not to make a fossil fuel divestment commitment. We've seen folks make net zero commitments with or without divestment, which is one of the things that I think is really compelling about it. It's not sort of mutually exclusive on that, but it's really, it gives like a long-term framework, I think, that, you know, endowments as long-term investors find useful. So I'm just curious. Um, yeah. I mean, how, how are you thinking about it? How has the work with BlackRock been around that? Um, what are you seeing as kind of the big challenges as you as you just kind of start this process? Yeah, I mean, again, I think you know the origins in this was the idea of trying to align with with the university. So, mm-hmm. um, so ASU achieved carbon neutrality on scope one and two emissions a, a few years ago, um, which is a little bit ahead of their plan. And and then they had a twenty thirty five goal for scope one, two, and three. Um, and I think uh, again, similarly to you know a lot of other institutions, if you if you think about students and and other stakeholders, there is this natural desire to see us divest um, mm-hmm. and you know, the committee really was struggling with that from a fiduciary perspective. And so, you know, I think also just from a, an economic impact perspective, right, selling our stakes in companies doesn't change the economic or, or planetary amount of carbon. Um, in fact, there's there's a lot of research now around um, the browning of private markets, right, as as people are, are as you're seeing more and more uh, of these types of things shift from public markets to private markets. Again, there's there's no difference in how much is out there. You're just changing the ownership of it. And, and in some cases, maybe have ownership that's less motivated to see actual real improvements. So, you know, I, I think this was this was part of the the challenge with with divestment. And then as we thought about the the university's goal on scope three, you know, at, at the at the heart of it, right, a big part of scope three, which has, you know, 15 different categories of, of financed emissions, um, investments is one of them. So we thought of again, even though maybe legally a, a slightly distinct that that you know essentially the investments of the university were largely the endowment. So in, in order for the university to ultimately achieve scope three carbon neutrality, you know we had to think about net zero for the portfolio. Um, so that was the starting point, which again I think helped win a, a lot of stakeholders, both in the alignment with the university, but then also thinking of it in a in a more holistic way than than just divestment. Certainly, you know, divestment would have been a lot easier. It's it's very clear cut and, and black and white. But but again, we thought that missed the mark. Um, so you know, as divestment's only looking at the supply side and, and not the demand side, I mean, we really wanted to think more about about the the whole picture. So ultimately, we made a a, a 2035 net zero commitment 
uh, a couple of years ago. Again, way ahead of you know most of of our peers that are are looking more at the 2050 of, of Paris, but that's that's you know where the university's um, scope three target is. So that's kind of the origins of it, and and you know I think transparency is is a really important part of that that first step. So you know looking to to publish periodic reports, how are we going to define it is is always a, an important first step. You know what is what does net zero mean for our endowment, and so that that's kind of how we we started with with that, and and how we arrived at net zero versus um, versus divestment. Mm-hmm. So maybe sticking on the the climate and net, net zero theme for just a little bit, and you you mentioned that you know you're in the process or or started to at least look at measuring carbon footprint mm-hmm. and there are challenges with that, right? And so some of the institutions that that we end up talking with, and I'm sure George, you're you know sort of hearing the same, is that there's a big challenge in terms of data quality and availability. So how are you thinking about some of those challenges? around data reliability when you are thinking about setting targets and objectives against which you're going to to manage uh you know manage a carbon strategy yeah no i mean that's i think that's a, one of the, the biggest issues right now is the availability and reliability of, of data and again i think you know we took a, a perspective um which sometimes is scary and and especially in you know the academic world where you know, we were willing to, to to plant our flag and then figure out how to get there afterwards, rather mm-hmm. than um, you know have all the answers first. Um, and again, use that as a way to 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 both drive change, but but then also you know start making baby baby steps towards an ultimate goal. But yeah, the data is really hard. You know, part of I think the benefit of having a separate pool, at least in the starting phase, was that it was a, a smaller, um, more concentrated book of assets to be thinking about these issues with. You know, we have. 20 line items instead of 150 line items um, in there. So um, it gave us a more manageable subset to think about the, the reporting side. Um, but you're right, there's there's not a lot of great answers yet in a in a multi-asset class portfolio, you know, where you've got um, you know, public and private investments, you've got, you know, stock and bond, you've got, you know, hedge fund that, that maybe fit in, you know, no man's land. You know, how do you measure? the carbon across the the portfolio uh in order to you know understand where you are and where you need to go so it's a it's a big challenge i think one of the the aha moments i had was actually in a in a, a working group with um with ien and george where kate Murtaugh from harvard management company was was talking about some of these same challenges that they've had on the data side and it kind of occurred to me that like you know if, if harvard hasn't figured these things out with you know their vast endowment and and you know multiple of resources that 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 they have it from a staff perspective you know like why why should we at asu i've got three full-time people on my team you know why why should we wait to have all the answers before we start to move forward you know there's i, I don't think there's as much of an expectation that we have it all solved before we make some of these these moves so that that i think kind of helped clear the clear the air a little bit for us to to make some of these commitments and start um, measuring what we can and figure out what those those gaps were um, to to ultimately solve and and I think that's part of it. Just sometimes asking the questions, right? I mean, as mm-hmm. you know, like most allocators, we've got a portfolio that's that's mostly you know funds, and so we've got underlying managers that we're working with. So you know, asking managers about um, you know carbon footprint of the portfolio, or asking them about you know certain Jedi metrics in in the in in their team as well as on the companies they're investing in on our behalf, just by asking the question and starting to gather it. You know, it starts to I think standardize the the data collection process that that, that has to happen from a, a manager and from a company perspective. So I think it's exciting to see, you know, more and more endowments make these net zero commitments, and you know how you described just how this is an extension of uh, the scope three emissions for the institution. 
is, you know, I think really important too, because as we launched that, the president's climate commitment, that was sort of the idea is that institutions would take this expanding view of scope mm-hmm. three and the endowments being part of that. And I know technically the foundation's a separate legal entity, but kind of same idea is, is important, but also just such an, a big leverage point that institutions can use their voice to sort of drive that change in the real economy. And so I'm curious, Jeff, you know, I, I think a big part of the net zero commitments are just that. So, you know, asset owners can work through their consultants, through their external managers to then talk to the companies about this and, and the companies can you know, be driven, be pushed to accelerate their strategies and their solutions to, to reduce their own emissions and help drive climate solutions in the real economy. But that's a bit of a complicated process, right? Like you've got to work through your OCIO and your managers, and there's kind of lots of layers there. So I know you all have done some work on that. And I'm just curious kind of where that stands, if you could share a little bit about how you've been thinking about the engagement piece. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you nailed it. We've We've tried to think about it across all those layers, right? So we've got you know, looking at ourselves, right? So how how is the investment team or the foundation thinking about these things as a as a business? You know, down to the you know our OCIO, um, down to the managers that that they're hiring on our behalf, and then and then ultimately into the and companies that are being invested in, and and trying to make sure that there's you know consistency across some of these priorities and themes uh, across each of those layers. And, and I think again, the, the measurement is hard, but but in some ways, at least starting off in kind of a non-parametric way, you know, do you do you have an ESG policy or or do you have a net zero target or starting off with with simple things like that? Have you joined a, a group like PRI or other um, industry groups on, on on these things that, you know, even if, if you can't maybe figure out how to scale measurement of a of an investment in a bond versus a, a investment in the same company and, and the equity side, at least at least you've kind of got the a, a similar way of looking at those two things. And, and so that was a big part of our, our starting point was was thinking about each of those different layers and, and starting to focus on some of those key priorities and, and making sure that, that that they're being measured. Has that led to changes in managers or just responses from existing managers that, you know, have kind of started doing more of this as a result of some of those conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, as 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 you know, I mean, the the space is evolving quickly. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, we've we've started to see managers that wouldn't even consider ESG five years ago to having you know dedicated resources and strategies on how to better integrate that as a lens in the in the portfolio process. Um, again, thinking more about uh, engagement um, as a lever that that can be key to advancing some of these uh, initiatives. Rather than maybe a, a cost of doing business, where you know there's a lot of work being done in proxy voting and things like that, so um, you know think of it more as an opportunity than a cost. So there there is an evolution. I, I think in the in the current manager roster, you know we've worked with BlackRock to kind of rank our managers on a on a spectrum of of how advanced they are on on ESG integration. And, and again, I think we've started to see more and more kind of move towards the the farther end of of advanced. Uh, or mm-hmm. leaders rather than pre-aware, I guess would be kind of a nice way of, of referring to managers that are, have, are not there. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's we're starting to see more and more of an evolution on it and, and starting to see more and more strategies and more and more asset classes that that do fit the bill. I think, you know, early on, you know, as you get into more niche asset classes, it was maybe harder to find, you know, is there a an EM debt manager that that you would say has a, a high ESG awareness, you know, and, and things like that. So now, now you're starting to see even, you know, beyond just the the mega asset classes, more more of it happening in the smaller asset classes as well. You know, maybe you could uh, chat a little bit. I mean, like a lot of other, you know, larger asset owners, institutional investors, you have a fair. I'm, I'm imagining you have a fair amount of your allocation in 
alternatives, mm -hmm. you know, private private equity, real estate, and hedge funds to some degree. You know, and, and just from my lens, you can't, you know, think about alts as a class either, right? There's private equity and as it relates to sustainability, ESG and net zero, you know, pretty different from hedge funds mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their evolution. It, can you talk a little bit about maybe the hedge fund class in particular? I think oftentimes that has gotten overlooked in discussions about ESG integration and net zero as a laggard in general. What are the types of things that you've seen and, and what are you looking for in terms of your hedge fund strategies as it relates to ESG and, and sustainability? Yeah, I think, Chris, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, I think the the ESG, ESG or, or impact side is, is a lot clearer on, you know, the, the private real estate or, or the private equity side. And, you know, hedge funds, I think, are, are kind of the final frontier where you're starting to see more integration um, in there. Um, and then again, there's arguments uh, around it. Hedge funds, are similar to your alternatives, you know, conversation, you know, hedge fund is a legal structure, not necessarily an investment strategy. So there's a, a gamut of sure. strategies within hedge fund that... Yep. That make this more or less, you know, relevant. You know, a CMBS arbitrage manager might not have as much, uh, you know, need to to be thinking about these things as, um, you know, a typical long short equity manager or something like that. But I think this um, topic is starting to get more ingrained into into that space. Again, working with BlackRock, we're starting to rank or starting to rate um, our managers on on this dimension. It's it's part of the. Um, standardized, you know, questionnaire that these managers are are providing and, and insights into into what they're how they're thinking about it, whether that be you know the the traditional ESG or how they're thinking about climate risk within the portfolio, depending on on the approach. Um, I think certain areas of the hedge fund portfolio, it's probably more natural than others. So you know, if you think about you know activist uh, investors uh, and strategies that that fall on the hedge fund side, you know, that's probably the probably where some of the leadership is happening right now, where you've got you know these hedge funds that are 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 taking big equity stakes and then really trying to drive change in companies and and that could be on a on a number of fronts right it could be on a a governance or a financial engineering side or or it could be on practices around um you know social or environmental practices that 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 might make those companies better long term value so it's it's evolving in the hedge fund space but that I think that that has been the laggard of of a multi asset class portfolio thus far and I find that interesting because one would think that a relatively unconstrained mandate, absolute return mandate, where you know the macro view would result in winners and losers, mm -hmm. right? So that type of strategy that is unconstrained, one would think that there's a way to implement the view and perhaps even the more optimal way to implement the view is mm -hmm. through an unconstrained strategy where you could both pick the winners as well as identify the losers or the risks and take advantage for example through short positions but you know we'll we'll see if we'll see if we see the the uptake on on that yep. um, my my guess is that the pressure from limited partnerships will uh, or the demand I, I shouldn't say necessarily the pressure but i think that the, the demand for strategies in that space will uh will hopefully drive the evolution of more product yep i agree Jeff, you also talked a bit about the importance of the JEDI work, the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. We'd love to circle back to that, both in terms of how it relates to the net zero work, because as we know, these issues are so interrelated in terms of climate justice. Marginalized communities often hit first and worst by the impacts of climate change, and I think have a lot of uh, value and leadership to bring to the solution. 
side of it as well. So just curious, you know, kind of in general, how you all are thinking about that and, um, you know, if and how you can think about it in an integrated way with the climate work. Yeah, no, I, and again, I think this is an area where we've, we've really tried to take the lead from the university. You know, our, our charter is literally carved in, in stone in a monument right outside my office and um, talks about how, you know, we measure success not by whom we exclude, but but rather whom we include. So, you know, I think there's this idea, again, that the university has been intentionally focused on finding a student body that reflects our community. Um, you know, we've recently received uh, a designation as a Hispanic serving institution, um, one of the top universities for veterans, one of the top universities for for Pell Grant recipients from a socioeconomic side. So, you know, again, this is part of uh, who we are. Um, after the you know the murder of George Floyd, the university, even with that um, that foundation, you know, tried to look at itself and and think about how to accelerate meaningful change and and contribute to a national agenda uh, on social ju- uh, social justice. Um, so created uh, what they called the Lift Initiative, which is around uh, listen, invest, facilitate, and teach, um, and and really trying to, again, more intentionally drive some of these ideas within different aspects of the of the university. So as a baseline, you know, we've thought about the same thing on, on our side. And, and I think, you know, your your point is a good one, George. I think it's oftentimes the the DEI or JEDI or again, whatever acronym you want to use, um, and the and the climate side are are kind of two separate initiatives and and really trying to think of how do you integrate them together within our school sustainability and, and i've learned this from our, our students they teach a lot about trying to avoid uh carbon tunnel vision um you know where you're mm-hmm. focused on on the envi- environmental side and, and lose sight of how interconnected a lot of these other dimensions are so i i think trying to just again deliberately think through that in the in the process and and elevate those conversations sometimes they are separate but again um, thinking of that as one of the dimensions of how we're thinking about a, a net zero portfolio and and our conversation with managers and things that we measure. Um, one of the the things that we're trying to do this summer is is roll out a, an ASU endowment fellowship program um, where you know we really want to try to elevate you know the idea of investing to 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 different uh, audiences that that maybe haven't seen themselves in the investment community um, within the university and and trying to touch first year students that haven't you know picked a career path yet. Um, and and try to you know give them a better idea of, of what it means to be an allocator, what it means to invest. I think I've heard from a lot of students that you know there's a kind of a jaded perspective on financial services sometimes. And um, mm-hmm. when you start to dive into the work that that we're doing and and can do and and the change that we can have as as big asset owners, that it is a place for some of these you know great minds to 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 use their resources with. Um, rather than against. And and so, you know, trying to do things mm-hmm. like that to help some of these uh, impact numbers that, that we care about. That's great. It's so exciting. And, um, you know, many of our listeners may know IEN, we published a primer on racial equity investing for endowments a couple of years ago. That lays out a whole sort of series of actions. And that is one is that student engagement and bringing students from different backgrounds that might not traditionally be represented in the financial industry, which is uh, not very diverse overall, to put it lightly. And so that's that's really exciting. And yeah, I wonder, I know we've worked together also on some of the other student engagement work that you all have done, which has also just, I think, been um, at the head of the pack. So we'd love to hear a bit more, you know, about the the student funds and how you've worked directly with them and uh, the engagement that you all have had in our our annual student challenge. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, President Crow, who, who you had alluded to, um, you know, he likes to say that uh, higher ed makes up less than 5% of the carbon footprint. Uh, but we make up 100% of the learning imprint. So I, I think to your your point, you know, the idea of of engaging with students and and really trying to help 
build up that next generation of, of leaders that are ultimately going to be the ones that solve these problems is is a, a big part of you know I think why we're here and 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 what the the role is and, and what gives us you know excitement about about working with the with the students. So we've been able to work with students in a, in a couple of different ways. Early on, we had created we have a, a lot of student managed funds where we've allocated you know small percentage but but big dollars of of the endowment for students to manage. We've got a couple of those solutions in in more traditional security selection quant ways, but when we created a, a dedicated ESG one where, as I as I kind of mentioned before, you know, students have to figure out what does ESG investing actually mean and, and build a strategy um, and, and go through a lot of these issues. That, that was an, an early uh, step in that. We then helped um, stand up a group that, that we call the Student Impact Finance Initiative, SciFi, um, and that's around uh, helping extend our reach on corporate engagement. So they um, helped us think about uh, proxy voting policy, um, they've been working with engagement with some of the companies that we hold stock in on, on different matters. And then ultimately, as we've been taking on more and more of our, our proxy voting responsibilities and, and partnership with a group called As You Sow and kind of their As You Vote program, they're helping us with the first pass of, of evaluating proxies and, and recommending voting there. So when we started off, we had about 5 million of our portfolio in, in direct stocks that, that, um, that we were voting proxies on directly. Um, we added a, an SMA to that and took that up to about 55 million. Um, and actually, this week we're we're starting to venture into the direct indexing approach, where we are replacing some of our ETFs with uh, direct ownership of securities to to both mm. customize our our um, exposures, but then also have more direct ownership for for proxy voting. So I think at the end of next week we'll have you know 85 million of of direct stock ownership that that we're voting proxies and engaging with the companies directly. Again, you know, leveraging students as a extension of of, of my office and in, in a lot of those efforts. Wow, very cool. Yeah, no, Jeff, this is this has really been a, a terrific discussion. Maybe just and maybe talk about the collaborations that you guys have had with, let's say, other endowments. It doesn't even have to be endowments, but other institutional investors. And, you know, maybe the level of knowledge sharing, I know that, you know, George and his group do a fantastic job facilitating that through mm -hmm. IEN, obviously, but, you know, maybe, maybe talk about sort of how you've worked with other, you know, CIOs across the country to sort of share best practices. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, it's one of the areas of, I think, this topic uh, in particular, and and you know maybe the you know asset allocator or, or you know endowment and foundation um, space in particular that is is so much fun is I, I think it's it's a lot less competitive and a lot more collaborative and and so the idea of you know reaching out to a peer and and finding out you know what their approach or journey has been or challenges or structure is is always really well received. Again, you know networking groups like like IEN and others have have been a, a big source of that. But you know I I think. Probably, you know, I probably speak to two or three institutions a, a month that are, you know, at different stages of their journey, and and again, trying to understand, you know, what our path was, and and you know how we were structured in in order to make success, and what worked or didn't work, and and trying to understand some of these nuances that that they're dealing with from a governance side or or what have you. Um, so I think it's 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 one of the things that I enjoy most is. You know, speaking to my peers and and these other seats and hearing what they're doing and and sharing sharing our journey and and again I think for your listeners um, you can find me on LinkedIn I'm I'm happy to to have these conversations in more in more depth if if any of these topics resonates or or, or has specific questions that's great and and Jeff I uh, other piece I you know you mentioned how competitive the space can often be and how this area of ESG and sustainable investing is a nice 
kind of welcome area of collaboration as everyone's trying to move forward. I feel like we buried the lead a little bit. You know, one of the uh, main challenges people often face in thinking about this topic is the, the misperception that these strategies are going to underperform. And uh, as the most recent fiscal year numbers are rolling in and the average endowment returns, I think, are down seven or down 10%. What did you guys come in at? Plus 2.6 or? Yeah, we were yeah plus two point four. So we had a a great uh, a great year. Thank you for uh, for mentioning that. But you're right. I mean, I think when we look at you know the drivers of that outperformance last year, I think it's a lot of the themes that we've talked about today. So we saw a lot of our ESG managers perform really well. You know, I think especially about emerging markets and and having a manager that was thinking about some of the governance risks in a China or a Russia and and being underweight those areas mm-hmm. led to outperformance um, on the um, on the clean tech side. Um, even what's happened in the last you know six months or so, um, you know we still saw a lot of a good returns from our venture portfolio that was investing in you know EVs and clean tech and other areas like that. Um, infrastructure, especially on the renewable power side, where there's a, a floating rate or kind of an inflation area element to it, you know we're we're strong performers as well. Um, and then we we did really well on some of our impact investments around education technology that we do kind of in, in thinking about ways to, again, advance the charter of the university, but but having unique insight in where we sit in understanding investment opportunities. Um, and so, you know, we definitely didn't feel like our leadership in, in you know, sustainability or ESG investing, you know, hurt our returns in, in any way. And, and in some ways, you know, was the the catalyst for a lot of the big winners that, that we saw last year. Yeah, that that's so great because I think there's just this narrative out there right now, especially in the current market where it's, you know, saying like, oh, well, you know, oil and gas are up and tech is down and that's what ESG or mission aligned investing is. So those strategies are going to get crushed this year. And, you know, obviously there's some of those strategies that are, but I think this just shows how a nuanced approach of looking at these factors can really help. And in any market environment when done well, you know, it's not like just thinking about ESG is going to guarantee better results, but not thinking about it, I think can increase risk or, or leave opportunities on the table. And, um, you know, I know this isn't an area we want to focus a ton on, but it's you can't sort of ignore the some of the attempts to politicize this. And um, you know, I think a lot of that argument that this is a political endeavor and it's going to sacrifice returns. You know, example like this just goes to show that it's that's not really the case, right? I mean, it's about better investing. Totally, and that's been uh, you know, I think our approach from the beginning is we're trying to avoid politicizing the endowment, and you know, we're fiduciaries, and we want to think about you know how. You know, ESG might might be another lens for evaluating risk, or how climate change might provide investment opportunities, and and again with this idea that that they can be used to help enhance returns or, or reduce risk in the portfolio, rather than you know serve some you know arbitrary political agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's really you know the if you cut to the chase, right, in terms of getting you know getting other institutional investors to come on board they really do have to believe in the alignment of performance with adopting you know these these approaches and you know the more that approaches like the one you've undertaken which fits you know your operating constraints the way you think about investing you know the more those approaches can be shared with others to, as as an example that that it, it can be done i think will um will help to just catalyze the whole, the whole field mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. yeah, and I appreciate you guys giving giving me the chance to uh, to share our journey for 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 that exact purpose. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I know we're taking a lot of your time here, but I've got one more question. If you're up for it, which is, you know, I think it's helpful for investment committees and decision makers who are kind of just newer to this conversation to hear some 
really tangible, specific examples. So I wonder if you've got any that you could share of, you know, just whether it's in a real energy project or, you know, in any asset class, anything that you can kind of comes to mind of something that's just a, a good investment with a good positive impact that sort of aligns with this whole strategy. Yeah. I mean, like I mentioned, we have a renewable power um, fund that we've invested in that's, you know, focused on, you know, wind and solar and um, infrastructure. If you think about, you know, charging stations and things like that. And, you know, that was one of our best investments on the board last year. And, and a lot of that, again, has to do with some of the nuance of, you know, how, you know, higher interest rates led to, to better deals that they were able to strike and 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 things like that. And, and obviously the um, opportunity cost or, or alternative of green power when when fossil fuel and traditional power was so much higher also you know, made it more lucrative so um mm-hmm. you know that was an area where you know we've been able to kind of hit our hit our objectives and and also have you know this this cleaner footprint as as a result versus you know maybe a traditional you know uh energy infrastructure oil and gas that 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 tends to be a lot more volatile in in different periods um yeah it did well last year but but hadn't in the past um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, more stability, lower volatility, and and still the, the the higher returns at the end of the day too. Great. Well, Chris, anything else we want to cover with Jeff? You know, I think you know, Jeff. Again, this was a, a terrific discussion. We appreciate you coming on and and sharing your journey and continued good good luck, good fortune to you that the the solid returns are going to uh, continue into the future. And best of luck to to the Sun Devils. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, you guys. Have a have a good day. Thanks, Jeff. You too. Bye.